This is The Friendship File, where we flip open the blueprints behind some of the world's most important relationships, the ones we have with our friends. Two friends have each been sent the same set of questions. They've recorded their responses on their own and without consulting. Here is the combination of their answers. This time, Martin and Michael. My name's Martin. My name's Michael. I live in London. I'm in Hertfordshire. I'm 68. 65, and I have known Michael, Martin half my life. since about 1986. Since 1983, I think. Describe the very first moment you remember seeing them. The first time I met him was after a party that we'd been to in the Irish club in Belgravia. When I first met Michael, I was more interested in his girlfriend. It was a fun party, far as I remember. And then Martin and his partner, who then became his wife, came back to where I was living in Clapham with the person who became my wife. Suddenly, there they were on a bus and she said, this is Michael, my boyfriend. And I thought... He looked like a plainclothes policeman. The main thing I remember about that was that I had a bottle of vodka. And Martin showed me what you do with a bottle of vodka is you take the cap off and you crush it with your foot so you have to drink the whole bottle, which I guess we must have done. I didn't rate him at all. There was something kind of straight about him. Because I remember later in the night sometime Martin decided he needed to go to the loo and he was going to get there by bicycle. The toilet wasn't very far away. It was just down a corridor about... A couple of metres, but he cycled there. I was a freelance journalist. I I was thought of myself as creative, and he looked rather straight. He was a surveyor or something, and he had a company car. When did that click happen? The moment you thought, yeah, I like you. I think at that point, I realised that not only was he fun, he was a lot of fun. We uh, had a couple of social sessions and uh, almost immediately I could see that he was funny. I think it was a gradual progression. We could go off into quite surreal conversations that kept us very, very highly amused and would go on for a long, long time, sometimes all night. At the time, I was working as a surveyor in the building industry, and I think Martin slightly resented that. Uh, he thought I should be doing something different. One day he said, I've uh, given up my job. And I said, well, why have you done that? He said, I didn't like it. And I said, well, what are you going to do now? And he said, well, I'm a freelance journalist now, like you. And I thought, well, yeah. Mm. He trained as a proper journalist, so he said. Uh, I've seen a picture of him pretending to work at the Hemel Hempstead Gazette back in the 70s. As we got on, and as I was wanting to do something a little bit different, I said, why don't we spend one day a week trying to write something funny? And he said, yeah, all right. And we wrote a column for a magazine called Midweek. And we called ourselves The Men Who Know, and we called the column Guide to Life. We wrote about religion. We wrote about haircuts. We wrote about fighting. Uh, we wrote about the lady's vagina. I think that one wasn't published. And we wrote about condoms as well at some point. And the line that came out there was uh, one of us said, a tennis ball in the end of a condom makes an ideal plaything for a horse. What is your thing, the thing you do when you get together? We get together either at his house or at mine. And there was nearly always drink involved. A common theme was booze. We'd usually start on what was left in the fridge. Sherry was um, a culprit. 
We'd like a nice fino or an amontillado or something a little poncy like that. You know, with the idea of finishing it up so it wouldn't be sticking around in the fridge anymore, being a nuisance. One evening we were drinking a bottle, I think it was Hungarian schnapps. It tasted of eggshells. It was foul. And we were so drunk, um, we phoned one of the Bee Gees. And I don't know which one it was. Uh, we didn't get to speak to him, but his wife was very nice and she understood we were just two drunken English idiots. And in hindsight, it might not have even been the Bee Gees at all. Sometimes this would go on all night and we'd be laughing quite a lot, playing very loud music upstairs in, in my study or in his. When we were working, we'd always listen to music um, and we had very similar tastes. We liked bands like Little Feet. We liked a bit of reggae, we, our country, Western swing. We'd like a bit of ska. Hey, you! Don't watch that! Watch this! One step beyond! And our wives hated it, of course. Because for one thing, we weren't earning as much money as we might have been doing our individual things. And for another thing, we were having so much fun while not earning so much money. It wasn't like with nail all the time. Of course, we weren't always drunk. We had plenty of days working. Martin's way of writing was to put everything down on his computer. One of us would be at the keyboard writing furiously and the other person would be wandering around the room, shouting wildly, or lying flat on the back on the floor. And it would be a huge pile of words on the page, and he'd write it all down, and then he'd stretch out on the floor, and, and he'd just go to sleep. Occasionally I would f fall asleep in this position, and I'd wake about God knows how long later and find Michael sitting there reading the paper. But I'd be sitting there thinking, what am I going to do with all these words? I would find that um, although we started off a conversation about something like how come Van Morrison could sing like an angel but look like a rabbit hutch repairman. One day I was doing that and the phone rang and I answered it and it was for Martin. I find that actually you discussed some meaningful personal things as well. I don't know quite how that happened. And it was, in fact, um, Dame Edna Everidge. And she called me a little possum and asked where Martin was, and I had to go and wake him up. My job was to listen carefully to everything Michael said and to note down the very funny and very odd things, which I did. We liked the same music, we liked the same food, we lived in the same road. It was quite a bit of fun. And it got more and more fun. And we were being paid for it. Who's better at keeping communication going? Neither of us are very good at communicating. I'm not sure either of us are particularly good at it. Except with each other, we would kind of talk in code. And when we worked together, we were perfect. And we both knew what we were doing. Well, neither of us knew what we were doing, but we both didn't know what we were doing together. He moved to the country and he really let me down. I moved to leafy Hertfordshire about 10 years ago. After saying that he would never, ever leave the city. I think we've slightly lost contact, that whenever we do meet, we still have a wonderful time. He does ring me up on my birthday, and he always remembers, and I'm very touched by that. I think we don't call each other as much as we should. We don't meet as much as we should, and I do feel guilty about that. I'm not even sure what day his birthday is. I know it's in November. So it might be me, it might be him. I tend to think... He's always there, 
and um, can be called upon if wanted. We must talk more. I feel safe, even if there is no contact. What is their best quality? I'd say cooking and food, uh, particularly up the top. I think everything I know about preparing food, cooking food, having people around to eat, I really learned from Martin. His humour. He just makes me laugh. He has a funny take on everything, an oblique take, a one where the logic is just skewed and it's delightful. I'd say his finest meal is his shepherd's pie. He doesn't just cook it, I'm sure. He curates it. He'll wander down the North End Road like some flaneur and find some wonderful piece of lamb. And he likes to get his hands into the food and really touch it and really get involved in it somehow. The other quality is his intelligence. He has an incredibly wide-ranging general knowledge. His love of children, he's always loved children. He's now got a number of grandchildren. He perhaps might relate to children more than he does to adults. What is it about them that drives you mad? What drives me mad about him is how he can suddenly become, once again, that very straight person. The thing that's always driven me mad about Martin is his timekeeping. He has no concept of time. If something goes wrong, I like to indulge the pain a little, you know play around with ideas, wonder how things could be mended. He tends to go, you know, we can't do it, so that's that. That annoys me slightly. So when we were working together, if we had some kind of appointment, I would tell him it was an hour earlier than it really was, and then he'd only be half an hour late. And when he apologises, he says, I'm sorry, and I've apologised now, so that's that. It's, um, it's finished in his mind. What do you think it is about you that drives them mad? Uh, me? I think definitely the thing that makes him frustrated is my uh, uh, indecision. I'm not sure now if he kind of thinks I shouldn't have moved to the country. My tendency to fiddle about with stuff that we thought we'd finished. I always just loathe the country. I said I could never live there. Whether he he doesn't like that or he's just baffled about it. He was very impatient with me sometimes. Uh, not surprisingly, I suppose. You might just think I was, um, I was wrong. Talk about a time they really came through for you. When I was leaving my wife, he wasn't in favour particularly, but he was very understanding and very good and uh, supportive and there to talk to. I think the time Martin really has come through for me is that he inspired me. He inspired me to be a writer. He cajoled me and persuaded me and, and nudged me and pushed me. And I had a lot of great experiences and did a lot of great things and have fabulous memories about that side of it. We never, ever had sessions like women supposedly do, where they, you know, you ask the other person how they're getting on and whether they're coping and uh, all this and that. And we never, ever did that. You know, we'd be talking about anything. And at the end of the evening, you realise that actually you talked about some very important things as well. And then he believed we could do live performance. But I'd never been on stage and Martin got us to do this. We did it at the Edinburgh Festival, Manchester Festival, the Comedy Store, the Ilkley Moor Pizza Express. And it was brilliant. I, I would never, ever have dreamed of doing that. And I would never have done that without Martin. 
he's always there to talk to uh, when needed and he's good at talking. Have you ever had a fight? There was never any real irritation. Yeah, we did once. It was about a line we were writing in something. Although I remember once when we were writing a comedy sketch and I wanted a reference to Mouldy Old Doe by Lieutenant Pigeon. And I said it was rubbish and he said it was a great joke and I said it was rubbish. He hated the idea of even mentioning Lieutenant Pigeon. And he was wrong and I'm still right. I can't even remember what the joke was. I've never seen him quite like it, but he, he really put his foot down. How did we resolve that? I think we just kind of ignored it, really, and carried on. I think he walked out. He said, I'm not having Lieutenant Pigeon in my sketch. It was as though he'd been tortured once to the music of Lieutenant Pigeon. Give an example of your shared language, the sort of stuff that only you get. It's a cliche that um, friends talk in a particular language. The way we did our comedy was we'd write it like a piece of prose. But probably exaggerated because we were writing comedy as well. As if it were in a magazine or a newspaper. And then we'd just break up the sentences. We lived in a world populated by characters with names like Brian Spemheim or Lionel Cowbait Evans. So we were always finishing each other's sentences anyway. Ideas like the self-cleaning horse... Helena Bonham Carter was always known as Sophie Tubfucker for some reason. I don't know. That was one of his. We didn't have any catchphrases. We weren't kind of um, catchphrase comedians. I sometimes feel we were perhaps two straight men. The, the danger, of course, is, is always that these things which we found very, very funny would not be understood at all by other people. Are they a good loser? I don't think Martin competes, or not obviously. It might be in a very subtle way. This was part of our problem. Neither of us actually is competitive. I could never imagine him doing a pub quiz and, and trying to win. And I think this was a bad thing as far as uh, professional success was concerned. Though he does do the Daily Telegraph crossword, and he's pretty good at that. So we kind of languished in a very pleasant world of things which were very funny to us and occasionally to other people. What do you envy about them? I admire his, his skill and his love of food. I hope I've caught a little bit of it. I hope I have. I don't know if I envy Michael. I also admire the fact that a few years ago he completely gave up drinking. I envy him that. I don't think I could even... I don't think I could do it. There are certainly qualities he has that I don't, but I'm very pleased for him to have them because that makes him interesting. Another thing I do admire about him is somehow he's kind of avoided what most of us regard as work for nearly all his life. What have they done that has surprised you? A lot of women were interested in Michael. I was very aware of it when we... Um, socialised, that women would come up and lean close to him and giggle and, uh, and de delight in his company. He never seemed to notice it. In fact, he did the London to Brighton bike ride before I did, and he did it on a big old Dutch cast iron bike. After we were both divorced, I met a woman in town. She had just 
come out of a long relationship and she was quite interested in finding a man. I suggested him to her and I said, well, shall I see if I can get him to call you? And she said, yeah, yeah. I've done it loads of times, but he did it first. I don't think he's ever been on a bicycle before or since. Well, this is what surprised me, that he did ring her. Michael just didn't do things like that, you know. And then um, a couple of months later, she was pregnant. And now they're very happy together and living in the country. When are they at their happiest? If he can talk, if he finds things funny, which is actually most of the time, but if he finds things very funny, then he's happier. I'd say it's when he's got people sat around his table, he's cooked something wonderful, and he'll be in the kitchen and he'll have his hands there, and he's got big hands. And if there's music involved, we both loved music. I remember once going to see Reckless Eric at the Cricketers Pub at, at the Oval in South London. We were quite old by this time. I mean, you know, Reckless Eric was past his prime and so were we, really. Delving into the food and to get everyone round his table and so that everyone has a good time, enjoys the food, has a drink, has a chat, meets people. He started singing Whole Wide World and Michael looked at me and said, uh, we have to pogo now. And we did. When I was a young boy and that was a very, very happy moment. If they were a food, what food would they be? He'd have a deceiving appearance. He'd be something like a pork pie, I think, but with a very um, surprising centre. I think I'm going to go back to the shepherd's pie. He'd be a shepherd's pie and he'd eat himself. It wouldn't be an ordinary pork pie. It would be something made by some very devious and interesting chef. Is there anything you've always wanted to apologise to them for or to explain, but have never got round to it? I once had a horrible argument at his house uh, with my ex-wife and I was well out of order. I was awful. And even now, more than 20 years on, um, I feel bad about it. And I probably said I was sorry then, but... I'd like to say I'm sorry again now because I was dreadful. One thing I suppose I should probably apologise for is for forcing him to take our act on stage. He really didn't want to do it. He was so against it and I nagged and nagged and nagged and eventually he did. I think I'd also like to apologise to him for when he got divorced from his wife because I don't think I really connected with him. I don't think I really understood what he was doing or why he was doing it. Driving home from one of our first gigs in Brighton, at which we'd been thrown off the stage, he said, stop the car, stop the car. And I drew in and he went into a newsagent and he bought a packet of cigarettes and he brought them back to the car and he opened them and started. I said, but you don't smoke. He said, I do now. I'd like to apologise for not really kind of being there because a few years before I'd been through a similar situation and, and he understood me and he talked to me and I don't think I really did that to him. And Martin, I'm sorry for that.
If they suddenly disappeared from this world, what is the one thing that you would lose that you cannot get anywhere else? We'll always have the past that we've shared, all those memories, all that laughter, all those experiences, all the Hungarian schnapps we drank and, and the funny times we had that still make us laugh. I'd still have those. If he disappeared from the world, I think I'd be shocked. I'd regret not being more in touch in these later years. We were the men who know. We wrote for The Guardian. We did a column in The Observer. We went to Edinburgh. We were on radio and telly. We even sold something to the Sunday sport. So I'd miss the person who took me with him. I think our relationship is unique and I'd mourn the loss severely. I'd never have done any of those things without him. I'd probably still be a surveyor. I'd probably still be driving a Cortina. I wouldn't have had dinner at the Marquis with Craig Charles without Marty. And that's what I'd miss. I'd miss the chat. Yeah. Before anyone else heard the answers to the questions, the friends got a chance to listen to each other and to react. Yeah, it was interesting that we both had a completely different memory of how we first met. Different year, three years apart, on a bus or in a front room. I can't remember anything about a bus. And he thought I was an undercover policeman. I think we're both right. As for Michael's apologies... I don't really recognise an offence at all. I, mean, I don't remember the argument he supposedly had with his, his wife. Martin, there's no need to apologise for forcing me onto the stage or whatever it is uh, you felt you'd done wrong because, God, no, I don't have a single regret about any of that stuff. We did amazing things. Our lives were chaotic, actually. We were jumping between two households. We had five kids between us, au pairs that needed to be rescued from the police station when they went shoplifting, things like that. People coming and going and starting arguments in the background was, was fairly normal, actually. And subsequently, I've done presentations and things in other jobs. Whenever it gets a bit tough or somebody asks an awkward question or they look like they hate me, I just think, well, you're not as bad as that crowd in Brighton who sang the death march at us, are you? At the same time, we were suddenly in Edinburgh sitting with Eartha Kitt waiting to go on air. And um, life was full of surreal moments like that, which were rather wonderful. With doing this, this The Friendship File, I was a bit scared at first. I didn't quite know what to expect. It was like carrying out an audit. Um, you're thinking why you like somebody, why, why they get on your tits now and again. Doing this exercise, sadly, has made me realise how much I do miss him. What I liked about it, what made me glad, was that we both have these um, fantastic memories of all the fun times. And that also, I think, what came out of it was we still like each other. And, and actually, I think we miss each other. It's kind of brought it all home. In fact, answering the question, what would I do if he suddenly wasn't in the world anymore, actually was made me very emotional. It's probably something I've never properly considered. We've let things slide a bit in, in terms of keeping in contact. Definitely one of the things I'm bringing out of this process is that we will meet as soon as we can. Sometimes in social conversations, I'll get carried away and say something quite wild. And 
look around and see that everybody's looking at me with in bewilderment. Is he mad? What I really got out of it was Martin still makes me laugh. And I realise what I'm doing is, is kicking a ball that I hope someone will pass back in the way that Michael would have returned it, making the conversation dance. Thank you for listening to this edition of The Friendship File. If you enjoyed it, please would you take a moment to go and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It really makes a difference to how many people find a podcast. You can also subscribe, which means that you will never miss an episode. The music for The Friendship File is composed by James Lancaster. He is one half of Walkering, and you can find all of their music on Spotify or Apple Music. In this edition, the extract from Moldy Old Doe was used by kind permission of Nigel Fletcher, part of Lieutenant Pigeon, and who, with Rob Woodward, is the composer and the performer of the song. The Friendship File is a podcast production. Till we open the next file, goodbye. Goodbye.